black ball. Black, black, black ball. is up everybody my name is james d fury and this is blackball my guest today is someone who's been on the show before it was after i watched a netflix documentary last year i decided to contact this person because i was completely riveted by the fact that he had been an activist for civil gay and civil rights for i think like four decades and the the documentary takes you through um, different countries that he's went to. The man has balls that are like the size of houses um, because he is able to go to places where most people would be afraid to go, even if they weren't an activist in a lot of cases. And I found uh, a piece of news recently that I thought would make it relevant to have him on the show. And uh, that is where Vladimir Putin decided that the American government and or the American people, maybe, or American society and NATO were, quote, imposing perversions onto kids, which I think is just basically Putin's way of saying that they're trying to respect gay rights. So uh, I would like to welcome to the show, back to the show, Peter Tatchell. Peter, how are you, buddy? Good, thank you. Great to join you, James. Thank you for for, for coming back. I appreciate it. Uh, when I when I saw that story, I saw the story first, and then I actually went to your page, and because I thought maybe you would say something about it. Because as we learned the first time that you were on the show, you did go to Russia uh, a number of years ago to protest their anti-gay policies, I believe it was. And I was wondering, because Putin is now public enemy number one. Is that issue, again, getting a little bit more play? It might not be for the same reasons that you would put that issue front and center, but do you find that it's like, let's hit Putin with everything we can, and being sort of homophobic is one of those issues? Well, first let me say that I stand in solidarity with all Russian people, gay and straight, uh, trans and bi. Um, I also stand in support of their civil and human rights struggle against the police state that President Putin has erected in recent years. Um, it is very important that we show our solidarity with very brave Russians who are resisting Putin's regime, the crackdown on freedom of expression, of course, the war in Ukraine, um, the suppression of labor and trade union rights, uh, and so on. So for me, LGBT plus rights is just one part of the spectrum of Putin's tyranny. Yeah, he's he's there, there's no shortage of tyranny with that with that one. Um, is you know when I uh, when I watched the documentary, I've watched it twice. Uh, you know, um, your personal safety is something that I was always I, I marveled at while watching it, and uh, and then reading a bunch of the stories that uh, were featured inside the documentary, and you know. We're both no spring chickens anymore, but but Peter, you've been doing this for so long that I am now wondering if you are done with the putting your physical self into harm's way. You know, like I know that your foundation is doing really well, 
And I was just curious if you um, are, are sort of uh, looking at another chapter where you're not necessarily on the front lines, or are you still going to go out there and prove to all of us that your balls are bigger than ours? <laughs> I'm not proving anything to anyone, but I'm just doing what I feel any person of conscience should do, and that is to stand up for human rights um, worldwide. Uh, not just LGBT plus, plus rights, but all human rights. And I'm certainly not done. You know, I intend to carry on for our hopefully another 25 years. Maybe I'll retire when I'm about 95. But there's still plenty of fire in me. And as you say, that Netflix documentary called Hating Peter Tatchell does give a snapshot of some of the things I've done in the past um, and some of the kinds of things I hope to, again to do in the future. I'm curious. I just thought of this question now. Uh what is it like to have a life calling that you remain committed to? Because there are not many people like that. There's a handful, you know, but there are not many people like that. And, and I want to know if, if you being who you are, if you ever even think of it, or, or do you ever have a moment where you sit back and you're just like, my entire life has been dedicated to this issue. And, and how does that make you feel? It must be bittersweet in a way, because if you're fighting for stuff, that means that there's still people that are trying to withhold rights. So there must be a sort of push and pull on that. Well, yeah, it's, it's extraordinary to look back over the last 55 years of my activism and think how I began way back in uh, 1965, age 15. Um, that was, that was, it's been a long, long journey. But what keeps me going is that I know that I have contributed together with many other people, with some phenomenal, important historic changes, not just in Britain, but in many other countries around the world. And it's that level of success that's been a great motivator to keep me carrying on. Uh, my rationale is, if I can do that, then I'll have a go at this. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk about that, or touch on your body of work first, because, and I only want to talk about this for a second, because um, it, when I put up the promo, it, it pissed me off a little bit, some of the comments that are that come underneath it, because 55 years of activism uh, breeds a certain kind of enemy sometimes. And I have read all of the quotes. I have read the article that you wrote. I have uh, I didn't read the book that it was referring to. But can you set the record straight about uh, the people that accuse you of advocating um, for lowering the uh, the age of consent? Because I know, because I read the words, what you meant, and the context was crystal clear to me. But I, I want to put that to rest finally, because I, I almost deleted the promo because there were people commenting on that, and I was trying to set them straight. And then I DM'd them the article that's at the, uh, the, uh, the Peter Thatcher Foundation page. Um, and, and I just wanted, I, I mean, I don't want to dwell on this. And I asked you before if there's anything we can't talk about, and you said no. So I would like you to just comment on that, and so we can put that to rest, if that's okay. Well, if anyone goes to my foundation website, petertatchellfoundation.org, you will find there numerous articles and statements clarifying that I, under no circumstances, condone adults having sex with children. But I think that where young people are of similar ages and they have consenting sex without any harm or complaint, then they should not be treated as criminals. Maybe they should have education and counseling. But for example, if two 15-year-olds kiss or have sex um, in British law and in law of many countries, that is a serious criminal offence. And they see those kids be put on the sexual offences register. That I think is completely different from adults having sex with kids 
which is not okay in any circumstances. Agreed. Um, and I, I had sex when I was 14 and she was 14 and I got her pregnant. Would that put me in jail when I was, if I was in Britain? Like what, what, what what's the charge? Well, it would be the number of charges under the Sexual Offences Act of 2003 in Britain, for the first time in British law, sex involving two people or one person just over or just under the age of consent became an explicit criminal offence with a maximum penalty of five years imprisonment in a youth detention facility and placement on the sex offenders register alongside rapists and paedophiles. Now that I think is that's crazy. so so wrong to treat young people if they know each other they're in a supportive committed consenting relationship they should not be treated as criminals that has to be completely separate from the obvious punishment that is merited out to people who are adults and who have sex with kids yeah no definitely and and thank you for for clarifying i know that it's something that you know you're probably tired of talking about but i just i just couldn't uh stomach some of the comments that I was reading underneath uh, the promo. Also, I'd be serving a lot. Can I just add that, you know, this line of attack to suggest I'm somehow soft on or an apologist for pedophilia, or that I'm even a pedophile myself, this is by people who can't win the arguments. You know, they don't like what I do. They defend tyrannical regimes. They support human rights abuses. They can't win the arguments. So they try and slur me with things like being pro-pedophilia, being racist, being Islamophobic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's horrific and it puts me under a lot of uh, emotional stress and um, distress to be called things that I know I'm not and would never, ever support as a human rights defender. But I think it does show that I'm hitting a nerve, that people have to resort to such desperate measures because they just haven't got the arguments or the evidence to counter what I'm saying. Yeah, one of the jump-offs was the your view on trans women having access to uh, women's spaces, and I noticed that uh, that there was a, a couple of journalists that were that took exception to that. There were a couple of uh, of feminists who 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 disagree with your position. I happen to disagree with your position, but I don't know why that means that people have to start attacking. You know, like it's not. Um, and I know how complex it is. We had a trans activist on the show, Karina Cohn, uh, who um, is a very articulate, well-spoken political advocate for trans rights, who believes that male-bodied uh, prisoners shouldn't be in women's prisons and that male-bodied people shouldn't be in rape crisis centers. But one of her main messages was that we can have this conversation and you can disagree with her and she's not going to think that you're a monster or that you don't care about women or anything like that. I think most people have an idea of what um, their opinions are on various issues. And that doesn't mean that if someone has a different opinion that you have to uh, then crucify them or, or um, libel them in the press. So, um, uh, you know, I, I think uh, it's a testament to, I think what you said was exactly right. I think, when you're an activist for 55 years, you're going to ruffle a feather or two, and then those feathers are going to come back you with the pointed end forward, right? Sometimes, and that's that's sort of par for the course now, I guess. Yeah, I mean, on the trans issue, I mean, my view is that biological sex is a reality. Hmm. So is transgender identity. They are different, but both are equally valid. And there doesn't need to be a war between 
biological women and trans women. Um, it is wrong to suggest that trans women are predators and a threat to other women. You know, trans women have been using women's bathrooms for decades without a problem. Mm -hmm. All these alleged scare stories and um, dangers are purely hypothetical. There's been perhaps a handful of cases where trans women have uh, abused other women, um, and I condemn that. But if you actually look at it, um, the majority of abuses of biological women are by other biological women. So it's, it's so wrong to generalize about trans people and institute bans and restrictions based on what a small minority of people might do. You know, for example, in the case of the Muslim community, uh, anybody with any decency will not demonize the whole Muslim community because a handful of Muslims are terrorists. That is so, so wrong. And most people accept that. But that is what is happening with the trans debate. You know, trans people are being demonized as predators and a threat to other women when 99.9% .9 are not and never will be. So we have to, I think, you know, look at the evidence and look at the facts. I think my, my, my position is even more pro-trans than that. I think that the handful of cases that you're talking about are actually cis heterosexual men who are co-opting the trans identity in order to be predators against women. And so I think that, but I also think that that is where the argument creates a complexity of how to handle male body prison. Like, how do you know if the person is telling you the truth or not about, um, you know, like the Karen White case? I know it's anecdotal, but it's still, it to me, it exposed a this like Trojan horse inside the legislation where if we can self-ID, then cis heterosexual men are going to use that Trojan horse and sometimes successfully so in order to be placed near a vulnerable woman. I don't think that happens a lot, but I think it happens. And I think that they still have to kind of figure out how to make sure that that doesn't happen. Would you agree with that or? Well, let's look at the reality. You know, there are several countries that have had uh, trans self ID for several years in not a single one of those countries. Has there been any problem? Um, we have to look at the evidence. You know, there isn't a problem. This is a hypothetical, uh, a scaremongering, um, which is just completely out of out of out of reality. But I agree that there may at one point be some trans person who does bad things as a result of trans self ID. That may be true, but you can't demonize the whole trans community based on what you know a handful of bad apples may do. You have to assume correctly that most trans women and trans men are not a threat to other people and that they live exemplary lives and uh, they have been for many years and should be allowed to continue to do so. Um, when it comes to trans um, women prisoners in women's prisons, well, I certainly agree that um, a trans woman who previously has a history of physical or sexual violence against women should not be placed in the general women's prison population. They should be put in segregation until there is very strong, clear evidence that they are fully reformed and that they are no threat or danger. We do have to hold out the option and possibility of redemption, that people who have done bad things, whether they be trans or not, can reform and change and become good uh, citizens. And I think that problem is that a lot of the trans critics don't allow that. They don't, they don't allow for forgiveness and redemption. Um, do you, I'm going to move off of this issue. I just want to ask something that I think is sort of an overarching question, uh, which is, 
if you if you take the general population, um, maybe over forty, who woke up one day and found out because they weren't paying attention because they have their own lives and their families and their jobs and everything. And they found out that the definition of women was no longer what it was when they were young. Do, do you think that there is a, do you think that there is a shortcoming in, in how this sort of new age of gender and definitions of gender and things like that, where it wasn't, um, it wasn't placed in front of society at large in a way that allowed people to really understand it. Like it was almost like the rules for a lot of people it felt like it changed overnight. Like, what do you mean a woman can have a penis? Like there, there was no one, you know, there was a lot of people who just didn't understand that from the get go. Was there a messaging problem uh, in, in this, not debate, but in this, just in this issue, this new reality? Well, I certainly think that um, trans people and allies need to inform and educate you know, denunciation and, um, you know, con condemnation is not the way forward, except in very extreme circumstances where someone is clearly acting maliciously. But if someone accidentally misgenders someone, uh, they shouldn't be roasted alive. Um, they sh it should be explained, you know, why respecting someone's pronouns is important. I mean, going back to the beginnings of my, my activist life in the late 1960s, I was a strong supporter of the women's liberation movement. And one of its key battle cries in that era was, biology is not destiny. In other words, the way we are physiologically born should not predetermine our opportunities or lack of them in life. But now I think some feminist critics have turned this battle cry around and they're saying that biology is destiny that if you are born a biological male, for example, that is the way you remain forever, regardless of what your identity may be. Now, it's true that trans women, unless they've had gender reassignment surgery, uh, do remain biological males, but they are women in the sense that they are trans women who are different from other women, but they are trans women in terms of the gender identity. And we know now that the latest research, the scientific research, suggests very strongly that trans people have different brain structures and processes compared to non-trans people. And this is the material biological basis for their gender identity. Now, I agree the research is, it's about three or four major studies, but it's very strongly pointing in that direction. So the idea that, um, transgender identity is delusional that people are just you know bonkers and just making things up um, i think is not supported by the new latest science hi i'm steve yurko and i'm tara sands now available from maji media is our new podcast four kids flashback Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. 
and thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Okay, um, let us. I want to move on to a, to to one of your other tweets because I, I um, we're I'm a Commonwealth. We're, we I live in a Commonwealth country. I live in Canada. Um, one of the biggest spears that I remember having as a kid, not biggest spears, but one of my concerns was that Prince Charles was going to one day be in our money. <laughs> and I was really kind of put off by that idea. Um, so when I was young, I developed a uh, chip on my shoulder when it came to the royal family. I used to call them the longest serving welfare family of all time. I didn't like that Canada kept on sending tens of millions of dollars to uh, the royal family every year. I was like, what is this money for? And then I saw this tweet, which was interesting. The queen used secretive state-backed shell company to hide from the public her shares in commercial companies and their value. Did she hide them from tax inspectors too? Royal privilege. Um, sorry. I found that gross. I found that um, remarkably privileged and entitled. Are, are Britain split? Because uh, I've actually never asked anyone this question. Are they split on their support for the monarchy? Is it largely generational? Can you give me an idea of the landscape of why anyone would support a family that just gets free money? And, and by the way, Charles was the worst dirty talker ever. A tampon? Really, Charles? Like, I don't know. So I, I have no respect from on any level. But can you give me an idea of what the landscape is like for their popularity in Britain? Well, at the moment, the royal family does have majority public support, although less so than, say, 10 or 15 years ago, and much less so among the younger generation. So I'd say that public opinion is beginning to shift against the monarchy and the idea that the monarch, unelected and unaccountable, should be our head of state. Um, there is an organization called Republic, which works for um, an elected, a democratic elected head of state, like they have in Ireland or Germany or many other countries, but a non-executive president, um, not the president like the French or the US president, a president that's purely ceremonial and low cost. That's the way things are moving. Certainly until recently, Prince Charles had fairly low uh, opinion poll ratings compared to the Queen herself. But in the wake of her death and his ascension to the throne, he seems to have had a boost. Now, I don't know whether that's going to last permanently or for how long, but I suspect when the time comes for his coronation next May, that it is very likely that, well, in the, in the foreseen, foreseeable months, in fact, leading up to the coronation, I think there will be a, a big public debate about the monarchy. And I think we will see more and more people um, asking questions and perhaps expressing reticence and doubt. The point you raised when you um, opened this section of the debate about the Queen having these special exemptions, um, this is just one of many that have been revealed. So it has been revealed that on at least a thousand occasions, 1,000 occasions, the Queen has used a special ancient procedure called Queen's Consent to intervene with the government to vet laws that might affect her personal property and wealth. Um, so it's quite outrageous that the Queen, or now King Charles, has the power 
under this arcane uh, ancient rule to vet legislation and to veto legislation that he does not agree with. So, for example, he's just requested a vetting of new legislation in Scotland that would affect the rights of tenants. And he's now concerned that the tenants on his Balmoral estate, which is a private estate, will be affected by these new rights given to tenants in Scottish law. The Scottish government won't say whether they have acceded to his demands for a revision. And that is even, once again, even more outrageous. The fact that a democratically elected government is supposed to be accountable to the people, to the people won't say if Prince Charles has got this get out. Yeah, I mean, Sorry, King Charles, King Charles. <laughs> yeah, oh my God, I see. I can't even bring myself to say it. Like it, it just, I watch things like the Pope, or or any type of royal ceremony, and I just think of Game of Thrones. I I I'm not trying to be funny. I I can't help it. Like there's what what was used to be called. What would they call? What's that British expression? Something in pomp. Pomp and circumstance. Yeah, something like that. Like uh, where where it's describing, and it's always like the hats. And how how amazing the hats! I'm just watching these things, and I'm like, these people are so out of touch. Like there, there's there's nothing um, compelling, I don't think, about uh, about why they would still exist as such a powerful group. Um, I'm gonna go out on a limb here, Peter, and suggest that you're probably not uh, pro monarch. Is that correct? Yeah, I've, I've been a supporter of the Republic campaign for many, many, many years. I yeah. don't think monarchy is compatible with democracy. It's a leftover and a relic from feudalism. And what is so astonishing is that under the monarchical system, whereby the monarch is our head of state, the equivalent of your um, prime minister or um, your, your um, the American president, um, what's so outrageous is that even the most unintelligent, immoral royal is by birth of virtue into the Windsor family, if firstborn, entitled to be monarch and head of state, uh, rather than the wisest, most moral commoner. That just cannot be right. And because, of course, um, the monarchy and head of state is vested in the all-white Windsor family, uh, in terms of the line of succession, it's going to be generations before any black or brown Britain could ever be our head of state. And I think that is, by default, a form of racism to say that the highest public office in the land, the head of state, is off limits to black and Asian Britons, I think is profoundly racist and offensive. Was it really surprising that the redheaded stepchild married a black woman? <laughs> Was that, well, you know, well, because she doesn't uh, get treated very well by anybody, it seems. I don't well, really uh, know if she's nice or not, to be honest, but. You know, yeah, certainly some the old of the old guard did raise eyebrows and suggest that this was not the the marriage that Prince Harry should undertake. But of course, um, Harry and uh, Meghan are well out of the line of succession. Um, there'd have to be a, a, a mass slaughter of, of of the more senior royals for them to ever be in a position to be king and queen. Well, we, we, we got some footage of Charles here signing something. I don't know if he was declaring himself king. I thought it was uh, pretty indicative of what the man is probably like in person. 
fuck's sake, mate. Fucking bollocks, this is. I shouldn't have to fucking do this shit, mate. I'm the king. What the fuck is this here? Can you just fucking move this out of the way? Fucking hell, mate. Being king is bollocks. I'm fucking done with this shit. Sorry. <laughs> that is, of course, a spoof video. Yes, of he, course. Did, I, he, I... he did get exasperated um, yeah. with those uh, pens and other instruments in his way and, you know, let rip and that showed his sort of sort of um i suppose temper how old is charles is he like 80 now oh no i think 72 or three i think yeah i, I think 73 good. i think but um yeah but he is the oldest monarch to ascend to the throne well um okay i want to move on a little bit because uh this one also caught my eye we're, we're going we're going over your tweets because i didn't want to just talk about the same old stuff with you anymore but david beckham Blocked the first openly gay Qatari on Instagram after he raised questions about the abuse of LGBT plus rights in Qatar and questioned why Beckham was accepting $150 million to do PR promoting the homophobic regime. I am with you on that. I, I can't stand it. When I hear about um, people like David Beckham or people like Beyonce or whoever going to perform in places like Qatar or Saudi Arabia where they literally execute you if you are gay. And they always have all these amazing reasons why they do it, except they really only have one, and that is a dollar sign. Has there been any blowback for David Beckham on this, or is the press doing what they normally do, most of the press anyways, and just kind of like, eh, you know, what are you going to do? Certainly there's been quite a lot of shock and dismay that David Beckham, who once said he was proud to be an LGBT plus icon, has accepted money from a regime where you're right. Um, LGBT plus people can be arrested, jailed, subjected to forcible conversion therapy, and even in extreme circumstances, executed under Sharia law. Um, you know, it is, it is really mind boggling that he would dare accept this money, but obviously money does talk and he has decided that money is more important than, uh, principles and human rights. Why was David Beckham a gay icon? Well, he always prided himself on, on being supportive of the LGBT plus community. Um, he paid homage to LGBT plus style in his dress and deportment. Um, you know, he, he supported and backed LGBT plus events. So that, that won him a lot of plaudits. But I think those are sadly, you know, fast disappearing. Um, he, he's, he's gone from LGBT plus icon to um, you know, a defender of a homophobic regime. Um, we talked earlier about Russia and I don't, I don't, I'm not, I'm not trying to get you in trouble or anything, but what are the, what's, what's Ukraine's, um, record on LGTP, LGD, LGBT plus communities? What, what, what is their, uh, if you, if you happen to know what their policies are, what society at large think, uh, over the, over in Ukraine about, uh, about gay issues? Ukraine does have a checkered history, um, but there have been steady gains for LGBT plus people over recent years. Uh, for example, unlike in Russia, uh, LGBT plus people can hold pride events and parades, and they are fully protected by the police from neo-Nazis and extremists. Um, LGBT plus organizations openly organize, they openly exist, there's no restrictions on their activities. And um, you know, recently there's been a big push to win um, civil unions or civil marriages in Ukraine. And President Zelensky 
has indicated that he's prepared to look at that, um, but he wants to delay it until after the war is over. Um, he says we need to focus on the war. I don't just see why you can't do both, but he hasn't dismissed it. He hasn't criticized the idea. He said he will look at it. So LGBT plus people in Ukraine are much, much happier than those in Russia. And indeed, one of the reasons why many LGBT plus people are volunteering um, in the Ukrainian armed forces is because they know that if Russia conquered Ukraine, it would be a huge setback for LGBT plus rights and people. Do you think that the way that Zelensky's image has been sort of, I would say, produced, I'm not saying he's a bad guy, but there's a, a heavy amount of image fixing and and uh, gloss, let's just say, uh, put over him. Do you think that one of the silver linings of that, because I, I, I find that I find that to be kind of propaganda. I'm, I, it's not as bad as Russia, clearly, but. You know, like the, I don't know if you saw the photo shoot that they did. I think it was for GQ, where him and his wife were standing all like, like fashion models in front of like tanks and buildings that have been blown to bits. And I thought that was gross. But do you think that one of the silver linings of a highly produced image like that is that they kind of have no choice now but to do things that are a little bit more progressive now that the world is watching? Absolutely. Um, you know, there is undoubtedly. You know, a lot of pressure on Ukraine to fully conform to the European Convention on Human Rights, which it does in most parts, in most respects. But the pressure has, has, has increased. And I think also there is quite a sea change in public attitudes in Ukraine. It's very difficult to say because there have been no real authoritative polls taken since the war began. But certainly um, the anecdotal evidence is that um, ordinary Ukrainians seeing the involvement and support of LGBT plus people in the war effort, it has changed their perceptions. And so unlike Russia, public opinion is definitely going in favor and towards LGBT plus rights in Ukraine. Um, we're going to wrap up soon, but I wanted to, I, I wanted to just talk about two, a couple more things. One of them is that I think that I would like to create a phrase uh, where I paraphrase an existing one and say that Touch don't crack because you're 70 years old and you don't look like you're 70 years old. And I'm wondering if it is the activism that keeps you young, because a lot of people would theorize that being such so active in in civil rights and in gay rights that it, it would wear you down. But you look great. And I'm wondering um, what your secret is. <laughs> well, I've got to say that um, there have been moments of great stress and even depression, um, particularly, as I mentioned earlier, those malicious smears and um, slurs against me, those false allegations. Um, but also, of course, the many violent assaults I've experienced. Over the last five decades plus, I've been physically violently assaulted over 300 times, over 300 times. There's been more than 50 attacks upon my flat, uh, my apartment, including three arson attacks, and even a bullet through my front door. Um, it's been tough. I don't don't deny that. And you know, there've been moments when I've 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 really struggled. But what has kept me going is this belief, this passion for human rights, for universal human rights, and the sense that I would want someone to help me if I was suffering. So therefore, I feel a duty to stand in solidarity with others when they are suffering. 
And I think if we all had that attitude, a lot of the world's injustices would be very quickly resolved. I'm sure you probably believe that the incrementalism is not steep enough, but from 1965 to 2022, how far have we come? Well, you know, um, we have made huge progress. Many of the world's great injustices like apartheid are history. Um, you know, um, the Soviet empire and its tyranny uh, is over. Um, we see in many countries, greater public services and benefits for people who are disadvantaged by reasons of unemployment or ill health. Um, we are making some progress, although not nearly enough on protecting the environment. Um, so, you know, I think history goes in like snakes and ladders, you know, you, you, you make progress and then maybe you slip back a bit. But overall, the trend is towards greater progress. And that's what inspires me and keeps me going. That's what, you know, you know, keeps me young and keeps me active and, you know, makes me want to carry on. I can see the changes that myself and millions of other people around the world have wrought, the positive changes, the life enhancing changes that have been won. And I just want to keep on doing more of it and work with others to achieve that. Um, I want to let you know, uh, because uh, since the last time I talked to you, your mom passed away. So I wanted to send you my condolences for that. It was a very compelling facet of the movie, watching you interact with your mother, who you knew didn't support your lifestyle, she would probably call it or whatever, but um, and that it was grounded in sort of a religious belief. And I loved how you loved her anyways, because I think you saw um, how... Um, how a, how a societal construct can shape beliefs into a direction that, you know, isn't beneficial necessarily, but, um, but she's still your mom, right? Yeah. I mean, she was born in 1927 in a completely different era from today mm -hmm. with different values. And she was brought up in a very strict evangelical Pentecostal uh, church. So she of course is very strongly influenced by that, but I've got to say that over the years she did grow and, she did come round, you know, she still to the day she died, believed that homosexuality is wrong because it says so in the Bible and she's a Bible believing Christian, but she doesn't see it as a major sin when it's between consenting adults. And she has actually supported my LGBT plus human rights work. She oh. thinks what I'm doing is right. That I, what I have been doing is right. And she thinks that homophobia is a terrible sin. Um, she's always welcomed my partner, you know, my partner and I just spoke to her um, just uh, two weeks before she died. And she was always being welcoming and supportive and treated him as part of the family. So that's like that's a fantastic example of someone growing and, and, and being willing to listen and learn. I know it sounds harsher than I intended to sound, but um, hate the sin, love the sinner seems to be, you know, better than, because there's a lot of hating the sinners. Like I'm an atheist. There's still countries I can't go to because if they find out I, I don't believe in God, that I can get killed, right? And they, they all, you know, it, which is which is crazy to me because I don't feel like an oppressed person or anything like that. But, you know, it's it's ridiculous. Um, and before I let you go, can you please tell Stephen Fry that I fucking jumped through the goddamn hoops that he made me jump through by writing him a goddamn handwritten letter and he never got back to me? Can you please send that message to him? Because he won't leave an email address. If you want to get a hold of Stephen Fry, you have to write him a letter. And I did. Yeah. And that was a year ago. I didn't get anything back. 
Well, uh, the only thing I can say in his defense is he, he, he probably gets tens of thousands. Um, oh. But, but, you know, he, he, he does, I think, have staff. So yeah. his staff should at least have drawn it to his attention and let you know. They might have needed a doctor to decipher my awful penmanship since I haven't written a handwritten letter in like 20 years. So that could be it. Um, Peter, it's always a pleasure having you. Um, let's do this again sooner than later. And um, thank you for joining us here today. Well, thank you. And uh, just remind your viewers, if yes. you're interested to find out about my work, please watch the Netflix documentary, Hating Peter Tatchell. It's streaming now. And go to my website, uh, my foundation's website, petertatchellfoundation.org. In the top right-hand corner, there's a button which says, join us. If you give us your email address, we will send you a weekly bulletin on a range of LGBT plus and other human rights issues. It's totally free. And of course, if you don't like it, you can always subscribe. Most of the stories are very serious, but we always try to include a funny or quirky one to give you a laugh as well. Well, I've been to the site and I, I read up on the organization before the first interview that we did. You guys do great work. Um, thank you for still fighting the fight and uh, hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. Yep. Thanks, James. And best Thanks, wishes Peter. to all your viewers and listeners. Thank you very much, Peter. That is Peter Tatchell. Um, he is a brilliant guy. Please go to the go to Netflix and watch the movie Hating Peter Tatchell. It is so good. You know, I'm from Canada, as many of my listeners are. I did not uh, know of Peter Tatchell before I saw this documentary. And uh, I'm glad I watched it. Um, and like I said, he does, an, he does amazing work. And, um, and we were happy to have him today on Blackballed. Uh, tomorrow on Blackballed, we will have M. Griner. Uh, she is an author and a musician who once toured with David Bowie. So that should be fun. And then on Friday, we have Heinous Cases with Rob Kivlikin. And uh, I'm so excited that I'm going to announce it now before I go that next week, we, uh, I have booked on the 21st at 10 a.m., which is 10 p.m. Singapore time, Major One. Mm. She's dope. I cannot wait. And um, so, yes, yeah, so I, I got to get out of here because I know the Dean Blundell show is starting in about five minutes. So we will see you next time on Black Ball. Thanks, everybody. Black Ball. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holawati from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network. Hi. 
I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app.